my name is Arundhati Roy. I should just say WC, WCBN FM, right? Okay. This is uh, WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and uh, the revolution will not be funded. Especially coming up after midnight I smell your secrets And I'm not too perfect To ever feel this worthless How did it come down to this Scrolling through your call list I don't want to lose my pride But I'm a me up a Know that I kept it sexy And know I kept it fun There's something that I'm missing and that was Beyonce here starting us off on The Living Writer Show. It's WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today. We're taping on July 8th, 2019, um, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Lisa Tadeo, author of Three Women, um, today on Living Writers. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, so glad you're here. I am, uh, for those of our listeners who um, who don't know your work yet, I'm going to read um, this bio on your yet-to-be-released uh, book, Three Women. Is it is it coming out this Wednesday, the 10th? Uh, Tuesday, the Tuesday, 9th. I'm sorry, Tomorrow. Tuesday, the 9th, of course. Yes, <laughs> yes. tomorrow. Um, <laughs> very new book. Uh, Lisa Tadeo has contributed to New York Magazine, Esquire, Elle, Glamour, and many other publications. Her nonfiction has been included in the anthologies Best American Sports Writing and Best American Political Writing, and her short stories have won two Pushcart Prizes. Um, Lisa today was author of Three Women, which is her first book, which is nonfiction. Um, we're so glad to have you here. I'm so glad to be here. Especially on, as we were just saying, the week of your book launch, which is an exciting one <laughs> yeah. and a hectic one, I imagine. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, so the book will uh, be out this weekend for our listeners who won't have read it uh, by air date. I wonder if you could sort of introduce it uh, for us, for our listeners. Sure. Um, so the book is, the idea for the book was to um, peel back the layers of female desire. I had read uh, Gay Talese's Thy Neighbor's Wife, which was an immersive account of sex in America back in the late 70s and the early 80s. And I really admired the book, and I thought that it was, I really admired mostly its submersive, um, I'm sorry, its immersive quality, which is that uh, Mr. Talese had spent multiple time with his subjects and had reported the book over nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew that I wanted to do something like that, uh, I didn't. I didn't know exactly how, but um, I wanted to tell the story of desire from a more female perspective because that book was decidedly extraordinarily male. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, you know, I didn't know where to start. I drove across the country six times, and I eventually moved to rural Indiana because I 
I don't know. I needed to get out of New York City because I felt like my worldview was a little too narrow there. And I was like hanging out with friends more than I was doing research. It just didn't feel like it was mm-hmm. the right place to be. So I moved to Indiana. I started a women's discussion group um, with the help of this doctor who was giving uh, his patients, his female patients, some hormone treatments. And they were losing weight and feeling really great in their bodies. So I started this discussion group. Several women came, and then it kind of grew. And, you know, it started out with, you know, that's how I found my first woman. And from there, I, you know, I kept moving around. I moved into the towns where most of the people that I profiled lived in. And I just sort of followed them and watched, you know, their social media, talked to them for, you know, about a year and a half to two years each. That's incredible. And, and the resulting book is three women, and it's profiles of these three women that you were deeply immersed with yourself. Um, and tell us sort of more about, about the book itself. Um, well, the book, it, it, it focuses on, I, I've spoken to hundreds of people, about 15 people at length for, mm-hmm. you know, more than three or four months. But the the reason the final three women stayed was because they had given me the, the, uh, the most, the most, uh, most access to the way that they were feeling and, and to the details of their sexual lives, which is hard for many people. Um, so there was... Uh, Lena, who was the woman that I mentioned finding in India, finding in Indiana, mm-hmm. and she had been stuck in a decade-long marriage with a man who had just told her he no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth, that the sensation offended him, mm-hmm. and that was kind of shocking. And so she was also about to embark on a relationship with her high school lover, with whom she had been very obsessed her whole life. Mm -hmm. So the immediacy of her story unfolding right before me was completely one of the, you know, the the most exciting things from just a journalistic perspective. And also she was kind of a perfect storm because she wanted someone to listen to her and I wanted someone to talk to me. So it was kind of amazing. Um, It's stunning. I mean, that that story is stunning in and of itself. And the fact that you were able to be there and be part of it is uh, really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I think that she was she was definitely the person who gave me the most. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, you know, it was a really great way for me to start it because I realized at that point what I needed to do, and it just felt it just felt right. And I just I, I knew I wasn't going to find that exact uh, situation again, but I was now I was at that point confident that at least I had a thread, like I knew what I was doing finally. Mm -hmm. So um, after living in her, you know, in her area for two years, I I drove across the country a couple more times Mm -hmm. and I was chasing down a lead that a group of immigrant women were um, working during the day at this cafe in Medora, North Dakota, and then in the evenings being trucked off to the local oil fields to have sex with the men who worked there, mm. which was interesting in and of itself. But I was reading a local newspaper in North Dakota, and I heard about this young woman named Maggie, who, as a high school student, had allegedly had a relationship with her high school English teacher, right. and she had recently brought charges against him to, uh, somewhat after he had been named North Dakota's Teacher of the Year. And the ensuing trial had upended their community, 
And so I just called her mother and drove to Fargo the next day I found it. So I found it really, uh, you know, there were all these hours of phone calls past 11 p.m. at midnight. And nobody was really talking about those to the extent that, that I thought that they should. <laughs> and also he had, like, written, allegedly written all these little notes in her copy of Twilight, the, you know, the book the about vampire YA lovers. Book. And it yes. was basically likening their situation, their relationship to these vampire lovers. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was shocking to me. So it's I another completely improbable, shocking story, yes, that yeah, you found. No, it was, it was insane. Uh, and then, you know, there are multiple people in between each of the three women, but uh, several dropped off, you know, after uh-huh. I spent six months with them after I'd moved to their town. So that was extraordinarily difficult. So wow. the, the third and final woman who is featured in the book, her name is Sloan. She, I, I moved to Newport, Rhode Island because I heard about a, you know, because I'd, I'd been talking to a, a, a couple of people who lived there. And I really liked the community for its, you know, kind of seasonality, the the summer people and then the people who live there year-round I thought was really interesting. So I moved there, and a couple of weeks after I was there, I began to hear these rumors about this woman named Sloan who was this very glamorous, beautiful, interesting, and wise woman who uh, was, you know, the, the first rumor was that her husband liked to watch her having sex with other men. Mm-hmm. And the second rumor was that she, her husband liked to have sex with her every day. And not only did she allow it, but she enjoyed it. And the sort of <laughs> horror with which that second one was conveyed to me. Oh, I thought dear. It was really remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a remarkable, um, you know, just a, a remarkable point about the way that we judge each other as women the way that we, you know, ju- the way that everybody judges everybody. It was just, mm-hmm. it was quite interesting to me. So I started talking to Sloan, and she was definitely the most reticent to talk, but I found her story so compelling. And, you know, a lot of people said, why didn't you write about a happy marriage? And I said, you know, I think that happy marriages are, you know, rather boring if people don't, you know, kind of tell you everything. And I also don't, you know, I I just, I don't know how narratively compelling they are, but with Sloan, she did have a very happy marriage, but at the same time, it was very confusing for her and the whole, um, her, her life and the way she saw herself. So that was, you know, interesting to me. She had a happy marriage, but she also didn't, you know, it was a barren. So I thought that was really, really remarkable. So she's the third woman. Well, each in their own way. I mean, each woman is either happy or pursuing their happiness, um, even amid some very maybe non-traditional and in some cases very sad and shocking situations, right? Yes. I mean, and that's the thing. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pain, but where there's desire, there is often pain. And I think that anybody who doesn't really admit that, you know, I don't know, it's strange to me because I've heard a lot of people going, is this where we are as women? And, you know, I don't think that, these women do not by any means speak to all women, they, but they speak very powerfully of their own stories. And that was why I was drawn to them, because their, the height of their desire was so powerful. And then, of course, you know, the sort of lows of that is also, you know, are also very, very powerful and, and, and intense. And so I was drawn to the intensity of their stories. Well, I'm so interested, you know, to hear you say how many other women you spoke to, um, and 
having read the book, I, I didn't feel like the influence of those other women or certainly the facts of their lives were, uh, were in the book. And so, um, that choice to omit them and to focus so cleanly on these three is, um, fascinating to me. Can you talk about what, you know, why, why not write a book just about desire and maybe feature these three, but then also talk about uh, the, well, the everything first else you draft learned. I handed in to my edit. Well, the first draft that I had was about like fifty people. Um, <laughs> the first draft I handed in to my editor was about fifteen. Uh-huh. And you know, these three stories were the most not only lengthy but also the most powerful. So you know, we kind of started pairing back people, and then it just felt like those people were fillers. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they had not given me as much stuff. It, it felt like, it just felt like they the access was quieter and the points were less. They also, you know, there were a lot of people who said, oh, you can't say this, you can't say this. And, you know, when I was, and I, of course, I, I was completely happy to take out everything that they didn't want because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't. Right. I wouldn't do that to anybody, and, you know, it just didn't make sense. It's not like they were public figures. So, you know, these three were just the most, they were just the most weighty, you know, the ones who just let me in the most. So that that's the predominant reason. But the other aspect of that is that, you know, I just think that the only way I could have given those women the sort of weight that they deserved mm-hmm. was to keep it clean like that. And it just felt very organic. Yeah, that's, um, that's incredible to think about all that you learned. And also, the time that unfolded uh, during the reporting of this, did you say it was eight years? Yes. That's so, I, you know, just as a, as a writer, as anyone doing a project, um, how do you keep your focus and motivation over eight years? That's that's pretty remarkable itself. <laughs> it was difficult. You know, I felt uh, at various points that I was that I was you know never going to finish it. Uh, there was not a point that I was going to quit because I just am a Capricorn, and <laughs> I don't think that I'm wired that way, but. I definitely thought I was going to fail. Uh-huh. I definitely felt like I was failing at, at almost every point. I mean, when I, I knew I had something good when I had Lena, yeah. but I didn't think that I was going to find Lena again. And so I, you know, and it took a long time to find that. And each time I found someone, I didn't know if they were going to stick. So it was really, really extraordinarily difficult. And I definitely did not think that this was going to come out in any way that I would be proud of. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, it's so interesting to look at how books develop. Um, It sounds like you were working on this for years and the shape of it hadn't crystallized for until you were turning in drafts to your editor, right? Which was long after, probably long after you'd first met Lena. Is that right? Time-wise? Yeah, very long after. It wasn't until, I think, like a year and a half ago. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but I had turned in uh-huh. Lena and he said, this is great. Just do this a couple of more times. And I think that was the most horrifying, um, <laughs> the most horrifying phone call I ever got. But, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I can't do that a couple more times. You don't understand. It was impossible. Um, so, yeah. So it was 
It, so it was a year and a half ago that I kind of had something. There were a couple times that I was like, what if we just make it Lena? <laughs> so, I mean, it, that, and he was kind of like, because at that point I had already found Maggie and I had like, you know, been researching her uh-huh. a little bit. So he was like, no, you know, Maggie's really remarkable. And I was, you know, I was, I agreed with him, but I also didn't, I didn't, it was going to take me so long and I just was exhausted. Right. Right. We're speaking to Lisa Tadeo, who's author of Three Women, and this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, I think, Lisa, we'll have a short break for one of the songs that you chose to sort of punctuate our conversation. We'll hear from Joni Mitchell, and then we'll come right back and talk more with you about Three Women. The wind is in from Africa Last night I couldn't sleep Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie But it's really not my home My fingernails are filthy I've got beach tar on my feet And I miss my clean white linen And my fancy French cologne Oh, Carrie, get out your cage That was Joni Mitchell. We're here on the Living Writers Show, WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We should say a nice thank you to Frank Uli, our engineer for the day, who's keeping things going. Um, and we're speaking with Lisa Tadeo, who's author of the nonfiction book Three Women. Um, Lisa, when we were speaking before, we talked a little bit about how you selected the women or how you came into this structure of the three of them being the focus of the book. Um, I wondered whether you felt in the end or or you felt that it was uh, your goal to sort of show what these women comprise together because their stories, their desires are very different. And I wonder if you think that they kind of comprise something complete about this question about desire that you're asking in the book um, or, or not? You know, I, I didn't, I didn't really, I uh, wasn't looking for a common, I mean, at the beginning I was looking for a commonality. Yeah. I was, you know, I was most, um, I was thinking I was going to do a town where I would follow the threads of multiple people in the town. Uh-huh. And that was a, that was an idea I really wanted to explore, and I tried to do it in Indiana because it was the first place I had moved to, and it was very, you know, middle of the country. It felt really right, but ultimately, it was hard. I mean, I just couldn't find people in the town. It was a lot harder than I thought it would be, even though I, I'd gotten to know some of the mm-hmm. the residents. And Well, it's very hard. Like, as a person who wasn't doing this project, thinking about moving to a town and talking to people about their sex lives, just like meeting them, that's incredible. That's an incredible goal to have. So (laughs) I'm not (laughs) surprised it was difficult, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people have said, you know, oh, I know people who, and it's like, you know, I I just, 
I did it. <laughs> it's not easy. And <laughs> of course I was it's not pretty, easy. Uh, you know, I used to go into bars and ask people if they had stories of desire. Um, you know, and, and, and they were like, what? You know, you can't, it's not like walking into a, a room or posting something and saying, you know, I want to write about dog sledding. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, you know, people who are into dog sledding are like, oh, I can tell you everything about dog sledding and my experiences as a dog sledder. But, yeah. you know, asking people about it, it's like, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was like, I'm writing a book about desire. And people would say, <laughs> what, what does that mean? And I would say, I, I don't know. I will let you know when I find out. <laughs> so so in terms of commonalities, I, I was I was looking for that. I, you know, in the end, I did not. I did not find that with a with a with the 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 idea of commonality that that I think most people would 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 want to see or would understand. What I found instead were three women who the three people because I don't think it really in the end it didn't matter as much that they were women, even though I did want to talk about female desire. Mm-hmm. But it was the way that they were judged by other people in their communities was very, very indicative to me of the way that many people were judged across the country, the way that specifically women tend to judge each other. And so that was one of the largest commonalities. Another one was the way in which these women had went, pursued their desires, which I think a lot of people, you know, would like to, a lot of people, and I'm not even talking about, you know, infidelity. I don't think that that's, it wasn't that I was condoning the idea of infidelity. It was more so that I felt that they, they were, you know, someone said about Lena, which is what I always felt about her, was that she, you know, pulled babysitters out of a hat and made all these things work and click in in tandem with each other just to see this man and that the power of that I found really just so compelling so interesting so intense motivation yeah yeah I mean you know so so in terms of in terms of commonalities I would say pursuit of desire intensity of story and judgment of others Talk about the judgment piece. I that to me that was a thread throughout the book is how um, these women, whether they were pursuing their own desires or whether um, they were in relationships that were more complicated, where they were not fully consensual in some cases, um, they were judged. No, sort of whether they, it was their choice or not. It was my feeling. Did that? Um, that how did the women kind of? talk to you about that aspect of judgment if they did you know the judgment wasn't the first i think that the notion that there was judgment the the fact of judgment was a reason that they wanted to talk because it was it's really awful to be judged and to not have an outlet that where someone can say yeah you're being judged it's not cool so i think that that's one reason why they talked lena for example wanted someone to listen she had no one to listen to everyone in her very, very small town and her Catholic family and Catholic upbringing would have said, you know, that's disgusting. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no matter, and she felt that way about herself in some way, but she also felt that she, you know, she had been raped as a young, as a, as a high schooler. And then she had, had been, had basically not been kissed until she met her husband who then, 
you know, they married rather without fanfare. And then mm-hmm. he had said at this point that he didn't want to kiss her on the mouth, that the sensation offended him. And the couple's therapist said, you know, that's okay. The way that you feel about wet wool is the way that your husband feels about kissing you on the mouth. So given all of those factors, the idea that she couldn't explore this this love story with this man who, you know, in his own ways had a number of problems. And she knew that, but she also, the way that she felt with him was the only way she'd ever felt good in her whole life. So stripping away the other aspects of, mm-hmm. of you know, whether or not she was doing the right thing, the pursuit of desire in the face of everything she had lost and never had was to me just, I, I don't know, it was just the most interesting thing that I'd seen and not only was it interesting but she was willing to talk about it Well with Lena, her story really made me imagine all of the women who are in similar circumstances but who don't pursue the Aidens in their lives or who don't pursue their own happiness they they let that judgment um, and those other feelings guide how they proceed which sometimes is really passive for some women yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that passivity, especially in, in female desire, is a large, is a large, uh, and creeping aspect. And most of the women that I spoke to had that that reticence to not just mm-hmm. not about infidelity, but just to, you know, to let someone know that they like them. And, you know, I also think it's hard to do that, to let someone know that you like them, because we're taught many different things. It's confusing. We're taught, one, that we shouldn't tell men that we like them, that men should chase us. Then, you know, a more a younger perspective on that is, you know, we can have sex like men. We can. So there's a lot of conflicting narratives on how a woman should act. And I don't know what is right or wrong necessarily. I know the things that I've told my friends and the things we've discussed, but in terms of a wider, a wider, you know, understanding, it's not for me to say or to even be able to conceive. But what these women did was they kind of stripped away all of the all of those those things that we're hearing all the time from the media, from you know, books from movies, and they just were like, you know, this is what I want right now, and I'm going to take it. So whether or not it is, quote-unquote, right, it was the the pursuit of of something that was so interesting, and also it was admirable, I would say. And, Mm. you know, I feel strange saying that because there's a lot of infidelity in there, but... Also, there was a lot of infidelity across the country, almost in 80% of the people I spoke to, whether they were from, you know, very traditional and religious communities or whether they were from more open ones. It was just a striking aspect. And it's something that uh, plagues or affects many relationships. And so, you know, I don't know that it's, I don't think it's necessarily a depressing thing. I just think it's something that we are very scared to admit and and with good reason. But at the same time, I just found that, that these women were 
cognizant of what they were doing and also, you know, self-aware and self-correcting, but also genuinely wanting what they wanted. Right. You know, you've mentioned a few times uh, with Lena, especially this access that she provided to her feelings and to, you know, everything that was going on, which as a reader, it, it was stunning to to read everything that that you discovered about um, her inner feelings and then the encounters she has with Aiden and even with her husband. Um, I'd love I'd love to know more about what that what your relationship with Lena was like and, and with the other women too. But but in this case, you know, how did you how did you arrive at a point where she was telling you what she told you? It it took a it didn't take much time with Lena. Honestly, it happened almost immediately after meeting at that discussion room. I yeah. I kind of pulled her aside and I said, you know, your story is so interesting and what's happened. I think that was the second meeting actually because she didn't tell everybody the whole story until the second. And and from then on, I think you know we met for coffee or lunch, and then it was just a nonstop flow. Mm-hmm. in her direction to me. Of course, I talked about myself, too, and we became friendly. You know, I would, I, I was, I care about her. I cared about her then. I cared about her trajectory, and I didn't want to influence it in any way. She did ask me what I, she should do, and I was, I would say, you know, this is what I did once, but I don't know what you should do. You need to. So we were, we had this, you know, this relationship, but at the same time, it was very clear that she was, telling me things that I was interviewing her. And I think Mm -hmm. that we both liked it that way. And it just was natural, but we did become close. And I I don't, it was no holds barred. I don't think she ever didn't tell me something. Mm -hmm. And is that somehow reflective of Lena herself? And and that that she wanted, um, as you were saying, a listener? Or is that, is there something else in there? I think that she wanted a listener. I I think that's the main thing. I also think that I presented myself as I am, which is a very non-judgmental person. I I judge enough people in my household, but I don't (laughs) do it out in the world. And so I think that she felt that and felt comfortable with me. And also she just, I mean, she genuinely wanted the same way that everybody, you know, when they're first like meeting someone that you like, you want to shout it from the rooftops. And she wanted to, but she couldn't do that. But she could with you. You provided that for her in a way. So um, when you were embedded with these women in their lives, did, um, I guess Maggie accepted because that was a a public case that that all of our listeners could read about in the news, of course. But with Sloan and with Lena, did the other people in their lives um, know who you were and what you were doing? Or or how anonymous was that? situation. Uh, I spoke to some of the people in their lives. I, I obviously did not speak to Aiden, for example, because that would have, you know, one, changed the trajectory of Lena's life and two, you know, would have would stopped the the narrative of the book. And also, mm-hmm. you know, just so, so there are people I spoke to uh, and the people that they didn't want to know, I obviously did not. And they are um, they are anonymous and concealed. Maggie is not uh, anonymous. Maggie is not because her core, her she was her 
case was public record, but the other two, yes. Yes. Um, well, I, we are speaking to Lisa Tadeo about Three Women, which is her new nonfiction book on The Living Writers Show. I think, Lisa, it would be great if you could read a selection after this next song break. Um, do you have one selected? Who will you read about? I think I would like to read about Lena. I just feel like she's, she's someone that I always found. Uh, I just think it conveys the, the heart of what I wanted to convey with the book. Great. Well, we'll hear from you after the next uh, song break from the selections you chose. This is The Living Writer Show. Welcome back to The Living Writer Show. I'm Amanda Yuli. Uh, we're speaking with Lisa Tadeo, who is author of Three Women. Um, Lisa, I forgot to ask you up until now, but do you want to speak about why you selected any of these songs that we've heard? Um, I just, I love them. I probably listen to uh, all, all of them during writing the book. Sometimes I would listen to, it's hard for me to actually listen to something and write at the same time, I can't do, you know, more than half of a thing at once. But, um, but yeah, I listened to them and be, it would just sort of be inspiring to, you know, to hear those songs, which I think are, you know, they're all about love as almost every song. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just said they're all about love. And um, I wonder if you see the word love in your book. I mean, love and desire are different things. Yeah, I, I do see, you know, I think that they are two different things, but it's also the the emotion that they produce is similar and they're interwoven in a way. I chose the way that these women, beyond them choosing me, because they, they their desire was not merely sensual, which is what a lot of the men that I spoke to, a lot of their desire was was sensual. And these were the desire and the love was interlinked, which I think is very true of a lot of women, certainly the ones that I spoke to. Mm-hmm. So you'll read a selection for us from um, Lena's story, it sounds like. Yes. Great. 
Okay. So this is um, towards the end of Lena's story, and she has met uh, her high school lover, Aiden, at the river, which is the the place that they would meet when they were in high school, and now it's it's circled back, and they're meeting there now, and it's this hallowed place for her. And she, this is one of the best times of her life. He grabs her face and starts kissing her. He is the best kisser in the world. It's her Princess Bride moment. A few months from now, she will try to plan an all-girls Princess Bride party that would include watching and then drinking wine afterward in her hot tub. Just two people will reply, and one of them will say she needs two weeks' notice to take off work, and the other will send a frowning face and say, It's my hubby's birthday weekend. When Aiden kisses her like this, it's impossible to enjoy herself in the moment. Her brain is congested with thinking about the end of their time together. These are the moments she must imprint. Some people, among them her doctor who prescribes her progesterone, say, There's a whole world out there, Lena. Everything is waiting for you. It pisses her off so much because these people are in happy places in their lives. That he kissed her first before she could kiss him made her feel she had won something. Even in love, Lena understands there is a competition, a frantic need to be the one who will hurt less than the other. She was also victorious after they made love in pretending she cared more about the cubs than what Aiden had to say. But now she becomes again a tangle of need and anxiety. She feels like her mother. She quietly murmurs that she doesn't want him to go, but she doesn't want him to stop kissing her. He gives her several short but wonderfully passionate kisses. She moans sexually and says, more, more, to last me another month before we see each other again. The next kiss is the most unbelievable one she's had in her life. He pulls her into him and keeps kissing and kissing and kissing and kissing. His tongue is moving in her mouth and never once comes out. She moans inside his mouth. He keeps pressing into her so much that his mouth is bringing her lower and lower into his lap, and they kiss and moan there together for a very long time. This is the only thing she has ever wanted. Lena believes that getting laid by the person you think is the most attractive at that moment is the most important biological need that many people subvert on an hourly basis. He gives her one final lingering kiss. Then Aiden walks out to pee into the brown trees. He gets the beer out of his truck and leans against his door and cracks the beer and stays for a few more minutes. Later, she will text him, thank you for taking the time, for spending so much time with me today. If you ask her how long it was, she will say, gee, I'd say it was almost 30 minutes. Thank you, Lisa. That was from Three Women, which is a nonfiction account of three women. And Lisa Tadeo has chronicled their desire um, in this book. Lisa, um, I wonder, you know, as a journalist, when you're looking at a story um, like like this one, like Lena's, um, did you... You're a journalist and you're also a fiction writer, I should say. And so I think I'm interested in the the different approach, if there is one, between trying to chronicle and to capture who Lena is as a person, her desires and motivations, who she is as a character, um, and, and the trying to capture the veracity of that uh, versus making a character in a book because it, Lena is it turns to me uh, strong and she's pursuing what she wants but she's you know also desperate and anxious right alongside her kind of boldness so I wonder how you um, how you navigated that because you have to be making some choices whether it's what you omit or, or what you choose to focus on in her character and her humanity can you talk about that a little 
Well, in all the cases, but most specifically in Lena's, because she was so she was just so forthcoming and giving of herself. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is that you know I, I didn't want to to focus on the specifics of where she grew up and where she came from, which I did. I did do that, and mm-hmm. obviously I talked a lot with her about it. But in the end, I omitted a lot of the the you know the kind of what what came has seen for me, especially since I, you know, and made it anonymous, was the facts of her life that were not as important as the facts of her interior life. So I removed a lot of those facts and, and went and delved more deeply into the specificity of how she felt when she was with aid and how she felt when she was being rejected by her own husband. And I would ask the same question multiple times to layer it and to make sure that I had as much content and as much veracity as I did. So, uh, you know, and I would read fiction too while I was writing it, because I think that fiction, reading nonfiction, especially if it's, if it's very staid, makes you feel, you know, a little bit, a little bit less likely to, to ask the questions that, that make people tick. And reading fiction, there is a freedom there that I wanted to remind myself of that people should, that people had these depths of emotion and that plumbing them in, in the same way you would construct a, a character was, became very important to me. Well, I think it's, uh, as a reader, it's mesmerizing to be able to see those layers and the contradictions um, and to know... Uh, that they're real. Um, and and you feel, you know, I think um, one thing that I, I would wonder as, as a journalist and as someone sort of reporting on this is how, um, how real those stories are. Um, but it sounds like you, you were able to sort of confirm them. I mean, you talk about that a little bit in the, in the prologue. Do you want to talk about how you, how you were sure about about these not just feelings but facts that you that you came across in your reporting because some of them are so incredible. Yeah, um, you know, I I spoke to other people in their orbit that mm-hmm. were not, uh, you know, not people that they didn't want me to talk to. Mm-hmm. I with Maggie's case, I you know went over the trial notes and the deposition. And I also hired an independent fact checker to talk to the women and to talk to other people in the women's lives to mm-hmm. make sure that they were, that, you know, everything was checking, was checking out. Yeah. It's a stunning combination of uh, what reads like fiction in this sort of, as I was saying before, the character development and then the, the factual accuracy. I wanted to, since you mentioned Maggie, I wanted to ask you about Maggie. You know, the frame of the book um, is desire and of course, in Maggie's case, uh, Maggie had a relationship with her English teacher when she was a student. Um, I think that the consent and the desire ha- is so complicated. Did you um, did you wonder about that? About including her desire alongside these I, other women? I I didn't wonder about it. I, I think it was you know it was a choice that I made because to not make it would be not real. Mm -hmm. And it it was important because she, she, 
she had that desire and to not include it would be would be reductive and it would be you know there are stories where it's just an assault it's just sexual assault and this was certainly that and i think that you know she didn't want I don't think she wanted to have sex. I don't think she wanted to have that physicality. I think she didn't know what she wanted. I think mm-hmm. ultimately it was this, you know, authority figure, this this man that she respected who was telling her she was a valuable person in the world. And But that was, that aspect of, of her wanting his approval was not, was real. And, you know, to not talk about it would be to, you know, also I think that if you don't talk about that stuff that, that the truth of the story is less, it, you know, it's harder to believe her if it's just, because when she, you know, when we started speaking, it was very obvious to me right away that she was pained by the loss still. Yes. And she definitely felt used by it. And after talking to multiple therapists and, uh-huh. you know, spending years in therapy trying to understand what had happened to her. And then not only to understand the, the, the sexual aspect of the relationship, but to understand what the community had done to her after, that though, all those elements to me were important because if I wanted people to believe her and to believe her version of events, then I needed to make sure that, that her version of events included the truth that, you know, I, there's a Mary Gateskill essay in her brilliant collection, Somebody with a Little Hammer, and she talks about rape. And she was raped, th- I think, three times. Mm-hmm. One was a violent rape by a, you know, a stranger on the street. And the other two were ones in which she felt complicit because she had invited the man into her home or she had begun kissing him. And mm-hmm. the, the third man that she was allegedly, well, not allegedly, that she was uh, somewhat raped by, because it didn't actually go all the way forward, mm-hmm. was a man that she had let in. They were kissing. They were, you know, it was in, they were engaging in, in a physical, you know, intimacy. And at one point, she just wanted it to stop. So she said, you know, she kind of pulled away, and then he kept going. And then she pulled away and said, please stop. And then he kept going. And she said, because she had learned from her first experience with date rape that, you know, she wasn't going to let it happen again. So she said, you know, if you don't stop right now, this is going to go very badly for both of us. So, you know, and that, that kind of just lit something in his brain and he stopped. Then she gets to the end of the essay and this powerful ending. She says that she had ended the essay just describing that situation and did not did not mention that she had gone on to date the man for several months after that. And mm-hmm. I thought that was such a powerful, powerful thing to say and a fearless one and a brave one because, you know, her point was that people wouldn't have believed her or wouldn't have thought that it meant anything. So she was saying that two things can be true. You can feel assaulted and you can also still like the person. So it's yes. just having that that prismatic understanding of 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 you know relationships is something that I didn't I didn't want to lose because I thought that losing it would be just not good for the book. Well, it's a much richer understanding of that situation. Um the headlines are salacious and I mean teacher of the year this <laughs> assault and and it's easy to see in news reporting how um this very complicated, very beautiful and heartbreaking story 
is easy to boil down to the facts, right? The facts are he was her teacher, she was a student, they were intimate, uh, and then that's wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but it's so much more than that. And so um, it's incredible that you were able to have Maggie speak to you. I'm, I wonder about, you know, she was already in in the spotlight in her community in a negative way. How did you... Uh, convince is the wrong word, but how did you um, approach asking her to be even more forthcoming about her story when um, when attention may, might have been it, negative for her? It otherwise? was difficult because I, I also question whether or not I should do that. Uh, ultimately, I decided before talking to her that, before even approaching her, that she hadn't had her story heard and she was completely being denied in her community. And I felt like, you know, I just wanted to say to her, hey, do you want to tell your story? And and that was why, where I went with my decision. And then, of course, the ultimate decision was hers. And I think that she, you know, I didn't say you should tell your story. I just said I would like to tell your story. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I think she just, it, it took a little bit. I mean, I don't think, I, it was, you know, at first it was very tentative. And I said this to everybody that I interviewed that, you know, we can just talk for a little bit, totally off the record. If at some point, at any point, you want to just stop, I'll just leave you alone. I won't, you know, harass you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why I lost a lot of people, because, (laughs) you know, I think some people would say, come on, let's, you know, and I've never been that kind of a reporter. And I always feel like I'm not good enough in that way, because if someone's reticent I just stop and I'm like okay all right okay because I'm genuinely a non-invasive person which you wouldn't think by the fact that I (laughs) shadowed these women and other people for so many years but you know I did it with like a full kind of you know look look we can stop you know anytime I'm you know you can also redact anything you want to redact because ultimately it's you know it's these people's lives and it's these like innermost lives and it's their sexual lives and their, you know, passionate lives. And to, to, to betray that if somebody doesn't want it out in the open is just, I think, the worst thing you can do to a human being. Yeah. How did you, if you did, how did you prepare these women for attention? I know that two are anonymized, um, but, but they, they must know that the book is out. I mean, did you have any conversations with them? I mean, we're still in touch. Um, I'm in touch with each of them. Maggie almost daily because her story is, you know, uh, out there in a way Mm -hmm. that the other two aren't. It keeps me up at night that Mm -hmm. Maggie will be vilified the way that she was earlier. A Mm -hmm. lot of people, so many people have said, oh, my God, she's so inspirational. And I'm so glad that I heard this, you know. But I'm worried about the same people who denigrated her in her own community um, for the other two, I'm worried that they will, you know, be discovered. I, I think that, you know, it would be very awful if an actual journalist did that. So I hope that people wouldn't even think to. But, you know, and I hope I disguise it enough to to make sure that doesn't happen. But it doesn't mean that I'm not worrying about that all the time. Yeah. We're speaking to Lisa Tadeo on The Living Writer Show. We're going to do a short break for one more song, and then uh, we'll be back.
Amanda Yuli, and you're listening to The Living Writer Show. We're speaking today to Lisa Tadeo, author of Three Women. And Lisa, we've spent time speaking about uh, Lena and about Maggie, but we haven't talked as much about Sloane and her story. I wondered if you, um, you could talk about how she, um, if you are able to talk about how she is feeling now uh, that some time has passed since the events in the book. Uh, you know, I think that she's doing, all three of them, I have to say, are doing excellently. And, uh-huh. you know, I think that they've, um, they've gotten some, Maggie said that the story gave her closure. Sloan said that it gave her an understanding of herself that she didn't have prior. Mm-hmm. And that I made her look cooler than she was, which <laughs> I completely disagree with. Cause I think she's, she's very glamorous. People I've ever met. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, no, I, I think that Sloan, you know, Sloane is, is still, she's still living her life and doing so with, with verve and confidence. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that they're, they're all in much, Maggie is a social worker, she's doing brilliantly. They're all in better places in their lives than they were when I wrote about them. And do you want to talk a little bit about your time speaking with Sloane, who also anonymously um, shared so much of her um, very private life with you about her marriage and about her background and history? Um, so it, it was slower going with her. Uh-huh. I was living in the community already, so that was both helpful and not helpful. She, We started off very slow. We started off just talking about various things, various, you know, other things that weren't sex. And then at one point we were like, you know, having coffee and she said, let's take a walk. And then halfway through the walk, she said, let's cut the crap. And <laughs> it was really, it was just so, I'm like, okay. Cause she, you know, she knew what I was looking for, but she also, I wasn't going to ask her because I didn't want her to feel, to feel pressed or, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I, yeah, I. Uh, that was when it kind of began, and then, you know, we just kind of started talking from there. But it was always very careful with her because she was had the most to lose, in a sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it went, but it definitely was the slowest going. It was slower than Maggie, even though you would think it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. And when you met her, had she already had this sort of... I guess rumors were going around about her. And so she already had this public kind of sense of judgment about her, her marriage and her sex life. Was that already kind of out there? Yeah. I yeah. mean, very quietly so, but yes, the rumors mm-hmm. were out there. I mean, I yeah. think that, you know, the the confirmation of them was not, but rumors yeah. certainly were. Yeah. And so I think it's all the more fascinating that you were able to um, have those conversations with her and her openness, uh, her obvious openness in uh, in what you captured in the book. 
know, I wanted to ask you too, Lisa, about um, your choice to frame the book a bit in um, in the opening and in the in the prologue um, about your family and yourself, yourself to some extent, but really your mother. How did that? Um, I found that such a, a beautiful way to um, connect the stories of it, these three it women. Came, um, it came rather naturally at the very end of the. I had already turned in the three women, and my editor said, you know, you don't have to, but I think that we should frame it. And I started thinking about it. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then, you know, I realized these three women had given so much of themselves that I wanted to put a little of my own self into it just to kind of not, just, you know, uh, because while I was writing about them, I tried to keep myself out of it as much as possible because it wasn't about me. And then so I wanted to put something of myself in there so I didn't feel like I was just taking their stories and not giving my own. But the main thing was that I had noticed with not just those three women, but with so many of the people I spoke to that we always talk about daddy issues in the national lexicon. We don't really talk about mommy issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are, you know, it's certainly for me, which is why I put my mother in. I Mm -hmm. had those. (laughs) And so it, it felt natural to frame it with the idea, the notion of what being a mother means and how it affects the way that we move through life and have our desires. Yeah, and I think as much as one would like to journalistically take take yourself out of the narrative, I mean, it seems to me that these women were so forthcoming somehow because of you and your authentic self being kind of that fourth woman in the book. Um, you, you don't show up in the narrative except for you know, in the first person parts in the, in the beginning and the end. But, um, I mean, do you think that you, you're in there somehow because of who you are? Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that we're all in there to an yeah. extent. And that's what, you know, a lot of the other people that I spoke to informed the questions I asked these women. A lot of the things I experienced in my life informed the questions I asked these women. So, yes, I mean, I do think, I think it would be impossible to not, you know, anytime we're writing anything, we have to bring our own experiences into it or there won't be anything, you know, you don't really have a starting point. If you, if you've just, you know, come out of from Mm -hmm. nowhere, like, you know, and see no man, you're not going to (laughs) be able to, to really, uh, you know, just understand someone and, and, and understand how you might ask them questions to elicit the the truth of who they are. And yet it sounds like you were so careful about inserting your own experiences and feelings into what were presumably warm, open relationships with these women. Yeah, I, I, I did. I did. I, I, you know, I'm very, I'm non-judgmental. I think that mm-hmm. comes across mm-hmm. a lot. And I didn't want them to feel, I wanted them, I mean, bigger, I'm not going to try to sound completely, you know, philanthropic here because that's not true, but I wanted them more so than I wanted to get their stories at at various points. I just wanted them to feel heard and seen because I had spent a good deal of my 20s in, you know, with a lot of grief and pain. And so that motivated me to not want other people to feel that. So I think that that, sort of, you know, feeling and empathy is, was clear to them and it came through in all of our conversations. 
We're speaking to Lisa Tadeo. This has been the Living Writers Show. Lisa, thanks for joining us to talk about your book, Three Women. Thank you for having me. Fasten your seatbelts, it's time for the Drive Time Polka Party!